0: Well, good morning. My name is Steven Huggins, and I am pumped to be here. I hope you guys are too. Um, So if you guys don't know me very well, one of the things that Hannah and I really love to do is we really, really enjoy camping. Camping, hiking, being outside, um, driving a Jeep, anywhere a Jeep can go. If you have a Jeep, you know what I'm talking about. But one of the things we love doing is anytime we can get away together, we try and pull an all-nighter and go all the way up to Sequoia National Park. Sometimes, yeah, it's about a six hour drive. Sometimes we leave at 7 or 8 p.m., get there around 4 in the morning. But realistically, what we like to do is just go and be out there. And so one of the things I was doing recently was researching something that every young boy does. And we always love throwing rocks, am I right? So if you have a kid, you know this. Sometimes, hopefully, your son has never thrown a rock into a window, hopefully. But what I was really excited about doing was making a slingshot. And this is a fantasy I've always kind of had. I've always been excited about this, and anyone can just pick up a stick and tie some surgical tube around it and shoot a rock. But there's a specific way you want to harden the wood. There's there's a special ratio between the fire and the smoke. If you get it too close to the fire, wood burns. So there goes your slingshot. And if you go too high, then it's not going to harden the wood. So there's a special ratio, there's a special location that it has to be. And so I found this article and I was excited about it. And uh, long story short, I never made the slingshot, Hannah wouldn't let me, sorry. As I was on this website, it's a website called Art of Manliness. Essentially, the idea is teaches you how to be a man. Um, So (laughs) please help me. And while I was on this website, another one came up. Another article called Stop Hanging Out with Women and Start Dating Them. And this was from a little while ago. And um, for all of you who are married and have been married for a while, thanks for not telling me that you still have to go on dates once you get married. (laughs) It's a long process. You keep dating and dating and dating, and then you die. And so, (laughs) and it is worth it. But as I was looking at this article post by a guy named Brett McKay, there's something that Brett writes in this article is this. He says, hanging out consists of people getting together in groups and doing stuff together, whereas dating, on the other hand, consists of pairing off with someone in a temporary commitment. So you can, I would say, it leads to a permanent commitment. But it says temporary commitment so you can get to know the person better and perhaps start a long-term relationship with them. So he, I think, he provides a helpful dichotomy between the idea of hanging out and dating. And this comes from dating advice from a book in 1944 called How to Get Along with Girls. So evidently times have changed a little bit because on this last uh, month we got to take the high schoolers up to Lake Mojave on a houseboat trip and I had fun. I had a lot of fun conversations. I don't know if the students enjoyed some of the conversations as much because one question I asked, um, a student brought it up, he said, oh, we, we, we have a thing. Me and this girl, we have a thing. I said, there's dating? there's hanging out, what is a thing? And so they started explaining to me what a thing is. Oh, we have a thing. And then the more terms kept coming up. Oh, we're going out. Okay, what does going out mean? Where's a thing? Where does a thing end and where does going out begin? And where does going on dates come into play? And then after that, where does dating come into play? Now, as some of you are rolling your eyes, feel my pain. (laughs) Having these conversations with high schoolers is something uh, yeah, not for the faint of heart. But as we were discussing these things, I started realizing that terms just get thrown around. You're dating, you're going on dates, that's two different things. You're, you're, you have a thing with someone, and all these terms were just used and I would say, used and potentially abused, and it just goes on and on and on. And then one student very precisely gave me this quote. I said, where does it end? How do you know? And she said, it all depends on the intent. It all depends on the intention, and as uh, some of you, uh, I think three or four of you today already, as you've seen this slide, they pointed out, well, no one knows when you're in high school and you're just dating. No one knows what the intent is, and so I hear that loud and clear, and I think that adds to some of the chaos. I think that adds to some of the chaos. When we open the Bible, we do something called looking for the author's intent, and I think it becomes so miserable, it becomes so painful to read the Bible when we don't actually have any idea what the author is trying to communicate to us, it becomes boring, it becomes dull, it becomes lifeless, it becomes miserable and completely void of joy. And so what I want to do today is we're going to jump into the Bible, but first what I get to do is um, the topic I had was how to read your Bible, and so we're ta- calling this sermon How to Read Your Bible for Your Joy, or Reading Your Bible for Your Joy. Because friends, I, I, I think that there's nothing better, I'm convinced that there's nothing better absolutely nothing better than getting a glimpse into the mind of God. And it is so much better than talking to high school students about where a thing is and where a thing begins and where a, where a dating relationship begins and where going on dates fits into that and where, uh, I mean, God forbid, throw the, the whole idea of marriage into their world and it's like, well, there are so many different things we can be doing. What do we do? No, I think aside from being miserable, <laughs> just having those conversations, I think there's something so much better when you actually understand the intent if you have no idea what the intent is, then you're just throwing noodles at the wall and seeing if your pasta's done. And sometimes you get it right, sometimes you don't. And you just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. But, but the idea is we want to continue to figure out what the author is communicating to us. Are we, are we just a thing? Are we actually going on dates? Are we actually dating? Are we actually married? Wow. I mean, there's, there's communication that has to be involved in there. But what we're going to do today is look for what's called the author's intent. And this is something that radically changed the way I read the Bible. I went to a fairly solid biblical studies program at Bible University. It's a pretty good program. From there, I went to Talbot and went into seminary, and I think I learned how to read the Bible after I actually graduated from this program that taught me how to read the Bible. Now, here's the irony: In, in high school, I was teaching Bible studies. In college, I was teaching Bible studies, and I didn't actually know how to read the Bible. I had no idea. I was trained. Like I, I showed you my resume, and I, had, I knew how to read the Bible from my resume. But when I actually learned how to read the Bible, my life drastically changed. My life drastically changed in a way that I started deepening my faith. Why? Because I was getting a glimpse into the mind of God. God wrote us a book. We don't have to just guess. We don't have to just go see what happens. See, man, I hope I can figure it out today. I hope I can figure out what God's talking to me today. He wrote us this thing so we can read it and read it well. You don't need a seminary degree, you don't need a PhD, you don't have to go to a Christian high school. We look for the author's intent. So the two things I want to do with us today is my hope and my goal and my prayer is that we get a better understanding on what author's intent means. And so the first half, of what we're going to be talking about is figure out what does author's intent mean. God's communicating something to us. He wrote us a book so that we could get a glimpse into his mind. There is nothing better than getting a glimpse into the mind of God. That is where the magic happens. That's where faith gets deeper. That's where trials start to diminish in their difficulty. Stuff is tough. Stuff is real. Life hits the fan sometimes. But the deeper our faith is, the more we trust Jesus, the more we continue to lean into what he's communicating to us, the closer into his mind that we get, our world will be radically changed. That's my prayer for our community. That's my prayer for um, the greater Rachel Santa Margarita Margarita community. That's my prayer for uh, the American church. Sometimes I look at the state of our church and there's something people are calling the epidemic or the scandal of biblical illiteracy. We don't know how to read the Bible anymore and it's damaging our faith. It's damaging our view of God. It's actually putting our faith in something other than God. So today, again, what I want to do is spend some time jumping into Just a couple of tools, and I'll breeze through those because I think that they're really important, but I think they're so much more boring as opposed to what we're going to do in John chapter 6 today. But um, we're going to go through those real quickly. You're free to take notes or not take notes. And then we're going to jump into John 6 and actually do it. And that's what I'm actually excited about. So we're going to go through this stuff pretty quickly. But again, there's nothing better than getting a glimpse into the mind of God, and he wrote us a book. Like the guy who created everything... The guy who made all things come together, the guy who is controlling all things, is a sovereign hand of God who we can't quite understand, but he gives us glimpses into it. He wrote us a book. And my concern is that oftentimes we don't care that much. My concern is that we read the Bible and we just close it and walk away. And so today, hopefully, we get a little more excitement, a little more encouragement. So we're going to jump into John chapter 6. And it says this After this, Jesus went away to the other side. Sorry, it's going to be 15 verses. Can we hang? Fifteen verses. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him. For he knew himself what he would do, classic Jesus. Philip answered in verse 7, 200 denarii wouldn't be, uh, a worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of them to get a little bit. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. What's that for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world perceiving then, verse 15, that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. God, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you for um, hey God, with everything that's going on in our world right now, thank you for being in control. Thank you for giving us more of you. Thank you for reminding us, giving us these little glimpses that you are actually in control when it feels like the world is just going to chaos. Thank you for being in control of it all. Thank you for being good to us. I pray that you give us a more clear glimpse into who you are today. God, give us a better picture. Give us a more clear picture. Give us a more uh, a deeper picture of who you are. and uh, And don't let us walk away from this common passage unchanged. As we've read this before, I pray that you continue to give us eyes to see Jesus. We love you and we pray this for your glory. We pray it for our joy in the journey. Amen. So my big idea for today, this is what I want to give us with, or uh, give to us. It says, Jesus didn't come to feed our worldly appetites, but to change them entirely. And so hopefully what we'll do for the next handful of time is, is we'll unpack this idea and explain where I got this from the text. Because I think that I've read this passage so many times I, <laughs> I had a lot of really good gold stars when I was in Sunday school. I had this tech. I, I could tell you if it was five five bread or five fish. I don't know. I knew the answer. Like I knew the answers, but that was the extent of it. I had passages memorized. I knew this stuff, but I didn't really have eyes to see. And Jesus is going to give us a pretty, uh, pretty uh, hefty rebuke. So I don't want you to actually read this. This is really tiny, but um. As we jump into this, we just read that text. I went online recently and found a bunch of, uh, I don't even know if you could call them commentary. They think they're commentary. But I read a bunch of commentaries on what the idea of this text is saying. I want to read these to you because here is where I think a lot of us went immediately. Here's where I immediately went the first time I read this text. Here's where I went for a lot of my life. I went straight to this. It says, um, Jesus fed 5,000 people plus women and children because of one little boy's generous heart. If you notice, that little boy received back from his generosity more than he could carry home. He received 12 baskets full of loaves and fishes. This was no formula. It was the return given by a loving heavenly father to a boy that had shown himself generous. I'm sure, if asked again, that the little boy would give up those 12 baskets to help some more people. I wonder, I wonder what would happen if we would all cultivate a culture of generosity in our own lives and family. Now that is something to think about. Something to think about, I'll give you that. It's something to think about, man, if only. Here's another one. Here's the reality, I need to be clear. This comes from a pretty well-known Christian website. A pretty mainstream Christian website. These are articles that smart people are publishing. People who are smarter than me, people who are way smarter than I'll ever be are publishing articles that say these things. And my conviction is that they kind of miss the point. So here's the second one. Here's the reality. It's not what you bring, but to whom you're bringing it to. On track so far, I like it. God can do so much with just a little. Still, on board, I love it. We often feel that our contribution to Jesus is inadequate, but he can use and multiply whatever we give him, whether it's our talents, our time, or treasures. I'm on board, I love it. Go devote your time, talents, and treasures to Jesus and see see the kingdom grow for God's glory. So what will you bring to God? They don't sound that bad. They don't sound that bad. Obviously, we see generosity on full display here, right? It's a good thing. Be more generous? Absolutely. It says go cultivate a culture of generosity in your community. Now that is something to think about. Go think about what you can give. Now, when you walk away with those things, when you walk away with those as your application point, you walk away thinking about what can I do? Me. Me, me, if only I was more generous. If only I could go do something in my community, if only I could start a, a food pantry, if only I could do this, if only I could do this, if only if only I could see the transition, if only I could go do this. Friends, I don't think we've done a good job reading the Bible if we walk away consistently consumed by ourselves. Good things. Don't get me wrong. Good things. Start a food pantry. Do it if you want. If you feel the tug to do it, go do it. If you feel the tug to go promote generosity in your community, absolutely, by all means, I think that is a reflection of a, of a God-fearing response to seeing who Jesus is more clearly. I think these things happen. But if that's the main takeaway, I think we missed it. When we read the Bible, when we read the book that God wrote us, we're actually looking for something. Not just, oh, that's a, g- yeah, I'll go be more generous. Deal. And then you walk away, man, I wish I could be more generous. And you just go straight into doubt. You go straight into despair. Man, I'm trying to be more generous. I'm trying to be more hopeful. I'm trying to be more this. I, I just need to do more, do more, do more, do more. I should be more like this. Man, I mean, have any of you ever heard of, a, of an evangelism sermon? Golly. Hey, go save people. Hey, go go be better in your community. I don't think that's the point of what Jesus is getting at. Yes, a genuine Christian response to seeing who Jesus is is it's an overflow of joy that is contagious and changes people's lives. But I don't think Jesus would ever say, hey, go do this better. Hey, go be better at evangelism. Hey, go be better at generosity. When we read the Bible, we're actually looking for something. We're looking for the author's intent. What is the author communicating to us? What is God communicating to us in the Bible? Again, he wrote us a book. He wrote us a book, and I think I often look to things like the Bible code, and I often look to things like, man, if only I knew Hebrew, I could put it all into a a graph paper and then find the cross, I mean, golly, and then I could find the code, and then I'd be able to interpret the Bible well. No, God is telling us something. It's a lot more clear than trying to figure out if a high schooler has a thing or if a high schooler is going on dates or whatever it is. So we look for the author's intent. Now, a high school student very clearly pointed this out to me hey, Stephen, if we're trying to look for the author's intent, how do we do that if I have my own brain and I don't actually have? the author's brain. How do I do this? And I said, great question. Here's how we do it. We look for the author's meaning, not our own. And I'm going to fly through these because I really just want to get to John. But we look for the author's meaning, not our own. So often I look at the Bible and the first thing that pops out is what's on my mind. More often than not, that's not what God's communicating through his word. He has an intended meaning. He's communicating something with us. We want to look for what he is telling us. So we look for the author's meaning, God's meaning, not our own. We want to know what the author wants us to understand. We aren't just reading for some subjective message, one that changes when we change. I want to say that loud and clear. We're not just looking for a subjective meaning. This is not a subjective text. This Bible, if you've been here for the last three, I think, three weeks, uh, Brad has made it abundantly clear. This is not a thing that changes meaning. This is not a thing that's gone through millions of different Um, translations, and then we have something today, which we hope is the Bible. I don't know. No, it goes back to the authors. We can actually trace this stuff back by doing good history, and I am completely confident that the word we have in front of us today is the word that God wants us to have, and there's a lot of people. There are a lot of people who are going against that, and they're trying to promote the idea that, no, it's, it's not the Bible anymore. How do you trust that thing? It's so outdated. No, it's not outdated. It's exactly what God wants us to have and he's still speaking through it. So we're looking not for a subjective meaning, but one that uh, is, is consistent. One is that the same meaning, the same meaning we can apply it in different ways, but there is one interpretation, one meaning that God's communicating to us through a text. And then the final one, the meaning of the sentence is what the author intended it to mean, not what the reader or hearer thinks it means. Again, let's step into the uncomfortable high school dating slash thing slash going on dates paradigm. Um, if you uh, misunderstand, that's going <laughs> to end quite poorly. If you think you're going on a date and then you, I was going to say you're going for a kiss. High schoolers, don't go in for a kiss on a date on hi- in high school. But um I have high schoolers over here, don't do it. But if, if, if you misread the signs, if you misunderstand what's actually happening, then you walk away feeling a little silly, am I right? Like, ooh, kind of missed the point there. In the same way, I don't think the text is going to, the, the scripture, if we misinterpret the scripture, I don't think we're going to walk away feeling silly. I think we're actually going to get a false picture of God. Our theology is going to be misplaced. You don't have to go read big old honkin' books about theology. The Bible gives us a lot of really, really challenging stuff. And I think Jesus, through the entire book of John, where we're going to step into, golly, I hope we get there soon, when we uh, step into the book of John, Jesus is consistently, almost fell, Jesus is consistently telling us, hey, you Pharisees, you don't have a view of the right Jesus. Hey, all you people following me, you 5,000, you don't actually have your faith in the true Jesus. Hey, even one of you disciples, you don't see who I am clearly. And it doesn't end well for them. And so this isn't scare tactics, this is me hoping that we can be a community continually who, they warned me about my silly microphone, and I said, I'll do it anyway. And now it's all patchy, I'm sorry. This is the life of, uh, of, of church, am I right? Sometimes it works well, sometimes it doesn't. Is it good? Am I going to keep bumping? Bingo. Booyah. So this is something that Jesus consistently does to us, sorry for that distraction, through the book of John. And we're going to jump in, but what we're trying to do is look at what God wants us to understand. What is God communicating to us? What is the author's intent? This is a language that our high school students I think have started to adopt. Um, I think part of it is in spite of me. They like to uh, try and catch me when I say something dumb, but I think they're starting to adopt this idea and I love it because there's nothing better than getting into the mind of God. The way you do that is looking for the author's intent. Now, some helpful notes, we'll fly through these again. When we read, usually we don't think much until we read something that's complicated. So the task, here's what we, you don't have to read those. The summarization of these is we often read so quickly, we're taught, we're taught to read so quickly that we just fly through it. How many of you have ever read a paragraph? We'll say, Where the Red Fern Grows. We'll we'll say, Homer's Iliad. We'll say anything you've ever read. You read it, add the Bible. You read it, and then you finish a paragraph, and you say, that was interesting. And then you move on, you're like, I have no idea what I just read or you're you're falling asleep, this still happens to me all the time, and it's so frustrating because I spend so much time reading and I memorize none of it, all right? Remember none of it. Reading comprehension, it's crazy. But you read it and then you walk away completely bored. You walk away not having any idea what you just read. This happens so often to me, and the reason for that is because I'm reading so passively. It's called passive reading. The task now, when we read the Bible, we wanna go from passive reading to now active reading. We're actually reading something. So what I have here is when we find a puzzle to be solved, or a mystery to be unraveled, our minds shift from passive reading to active reading. The task of reading the Bible, the task of finding the author's intent of a passage in the Bible, a a, a scripture, is you don't want to read it passively. Just go go read as much as you can. No, no, we want to actually sit and read this stuff and turn our brains on and be active readers so we can actually try and solve the puzzle. And it's not put it in a cross-section and see which words connect to what. No, no, it's not like that. It's not something you gotta pay in an infomercial to find. No, God is actually communicating to us and he wants us to be able to understand this stuff. It's sufficient, it's clear, we just have to think. Oftentimes it hurts. I had a, a high school student recently tell me, he's like, oh man, he called me Mr. Huggins. He's like, Mr. Huggins, this hurts my brain. I was like, yeah, good, thank you. It's supposed to, until you learn to love it. Until you learn to love that feeling in your brain of getting a mi- glimpse into the mind of God. It takes time, it's taking a journey. It will continue to take a journey. Now, another slide. I'm sorry, guys. Six things. These are valuable. I find these to be very valuable, and then we'll get to John, I promise. But the first question is you ask about words. These are tips and tricks to get from passive reading to active reading. Active reading is where the magic happens. Active reading, I'm convinced, is where faith becomes deeper. It's where you start to get past just memorization of the words, and you actually start to see what it's communicating. You're no longer just looking at what, but now you're seeing why. You ask about words. Here are two examples. Luke chapter 13, uh, we get this idea of repent or perish. So often I look at the word repent and I just think, oh man, I just need to stop sinning. I need to go make sure, and this is, I kid you not, this is a story from my childhood. One day I learned about um, repentance, and so here's what I did. I went home and I grabbed a journal and I wrote down every sin I could think of. I even made some up because I was like, I don't, I don't know if I stole a friend's pencil or not today, but I probably did somehow. I probably uh, picked up a quarter and I probably stole a quarter from someone that I found on the ground. And I was so terrified that I was going to die that night. I wasn't afraid of fear, but I was afraid that I was gonna die that night without repenting of all my sins. Have any of you ever had an, a thought like that? I was convinced that that was what was gonna happen. Make sure you say sorry for all your sins or else Jesus is gonna send you to hell. Sorry. You should have said sorry for that sin. No, when you actually look at the word repent, it's a complete paradigm shift. The literal word that Jesus is saying there is a different way of thinking. He's not saying, hey, you better say sorry for your sins. He's saying, no, you, in the context, you used to be satisfied by this other stuff. You used to be satisfied by these worldly desires, but now as a repentant Christian, as someone who repents, your complete paradigm of thinking has shifted. You used to be satisfied with this stuff in the world, and now you're repentant, and now you're satisfied by other stuff. What is that other stuff? The context of what he's talking about is Jesus. You used to be satisfied. This is what a repentant Christian is. It's not someone who just goes and says sorry for all of his sins so he doesn't go to hell when he dies or she. A repentant Christian is someone who is trusting Jesus for their satisfaction more than anything else this world can offer. That is repentant Christian. Judge not. This is a common thing that I think a lot of people take out of context oftentimes. Like, I'm not allowed to judge. Well, I made a judgment. I made a judgment on which Bible to buy. I made a judgment on if I wanted to drink Walmart water or Arrowhead water. I made a, a judgment. Preach, right? I made, a <laughs> I made a judgment. I make judgments every day. Where do I want to go for lunch? Uh, I don't know. I love Del Taco, but pff, man, a steak sounds a lot better. And we're making judgments every day, but don't judge. Uh, Okay, well, what does he mean? We ask about words. What do they mean? Ask about phrases. Here's an example that Paul uses in Romans. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We ask about words. What on earth does he mean by by the Spirit? Kill my flesh by the Spirit. Uh, Okay, so we ask about words. And again, I'm preaching John 6, so we're not going to talk about that stuff yet. But stuff to think about. Ask about relationships between phrases. How does this phrase relate to this phrase? Put to death my flesh by the Spirit. How do those connect? Something to think about. Ask about how the context helps define words and phrases. We're gonna see this on full display, so I don't have an example for that in John 6. But number five, ask about connections to other parts of the Bible. Again, Deuteronomy 18 is gonna be loud and clear in John 6 today. How do you know that? You know that by reading the Bible more. For your joy, not just begrudgingly, not just because you're supposed to, to be a good Christian, but by actually trusting that there's something good going on in the text. And then ask about uh, applications and affections. And uh, you guys don't have to write those down. I'll get them out to you somehow if I see some of you scrambling to write them. Um, Ask about applications and affections. What is the, uh, what's my emotional response supposed to be? Emotions are good. Emotions are a metric of our faith. I'm convinced by it. I think that so often we think that Jesus is going to satisfy our worldly desires and make us happy. He's going to say something completely different today. He actually changes our desires. He doesn't just come to satisfy our worldly desires. Man, if I come to Jesus, I'm going to get a nicer car. I'm going to have a better marriage. I'm going to have nicer kids. My kids are going to get into the Ivy League school. Life's going to get better if I come to Jesus. No, actually, emotions are key. Jesus does make you happier. But here's the thing. He doesn't make you happier for the stuff he gives you. He gets you happier because of himself. Trusting Jesus as your greatest treasure is what actually promotes more joy in your life. Interesting. It's not just the stuff he gives you. It's actually he, him, himself. So ask about affections. Now, golly, we are finally back in John 6. Does anyone want to take a deep sigh with me, sigh of relief? Like, whew. All right. John chapter 6. After this, what do we do? Question number one, we ask about words. After this, what is this? This. Let's look at the context. John chapter 5, the very end of it, it says, you search the scriptures. Jesus talking to these Uh, people who are following him. He says this, hefty rebuke, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's hidden somewhere in the text. And it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What he's saying is you guys keep looking for the Old Testament in this context. You keep looking at the Old Testament because you think there's some hidden meaning about how to find eternal life. No, Guys, it's all pointing to me. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to him and how he's more satisfying than anything else, but you missed it. You refused to come to me that you may have eternal life. Skip down to the end of 45. It says, for there is one who accuses you. It's Moses, on whom you've set your hope. The context here, again, context is so key. Question number four, ask about context and how it influences meaning. The context, we're following Moses. Moses is gonna bring us new life. Moses is gonna bring us salvation. No, Jesus says, there's one who accuses you, and actually it's Moses. It's actually the law. The law is your accuser. You guys have missed the point. You're looking to Moses for your hope and you've missed the hope because hope is found only in Jesus, not Moses. Not your kids getting in the right college. Not this. Not your bank account thriving. Not your business making it through the potential issue coming up. Not this, not that. It's Jesus. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me. Moses has just been pointing at me for he wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? If you don't get what Moses is talking about, if you don't get Moses' author's intent, how are you going to get what Jesus is talking about? Now we have Jesus to clarify, and I love it, and the rest of the New Testament to clarify as well. But now, enter John 6 again. After all of that, after he just rebuked these guys, he now goes away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him. Why were they following him? This is key. I used to read this text in Man hey, all these people just got saved. Look at that. 5,000 plus women and children. Maybe some people say up to 15 or 20,000. We'll say five because that's what the text says, but 5,000 people just got saved. Hallelujah, amen. Am I right? Large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Their motivation to follow Jesus was, man, look at how practical this guy is. Look at that. This guy can save people. What does he actually do? John chapter 2, the first sign, filling the water to wine. We won't read it, but Jesus, I'm not saying wine came from Jesus, but read John 2. John 2, he changes water to wine. (laughs) Is that too much? (laughs) Let's go, church. John chapter 2, Jesus just changed water to wine. That's a pretty big sign. John says that's the first sign. Second sign right here, Uh, an official whose son is ill. In John chapter 4, this guy comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my son's going to die. And so then Jesus says, he's going to be okay. And then Jesus heals him. And then all these guys come in verse 51. As he was going down, his servants met him. As he's on his way home, his servants meet him and tell him that his son is recovering. He asks him what hour, and he knows it's the exact time that Jesus said, your son's going to be fine. Water to wine. Water to wine. Healing a guy's son. And then that's the second sign. The third one, and this one doesn't blatantly use the word sign, but I think it's implied the Pool of Bethesda. He gets a lame guy to walk. A guy who's, I mean, read the story, it's great. But this guy hasn't been able to get healed. He hasn't been able to walk, essentially, a pretty significant amount of time. And Jesus says, Get up and walk. Do you want to be made well? Do you want to be healed? Get up, take your bed and walk. At once, the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. If you have a magician who can heal people, who can turn water into wine, if you can do all this cool stuff and heal people, uh, do you want to follow him? If David Blaine came up here and started, you guys know who David Blaine is? David Blaine. Um, If you see David Blaine come up here and he starts doing all these crazy things and claiming to be the Messiah, I'd be tempted to follow him. I'd read the Bible again and say, "Mm, probably not the Messiah. Jesus has already come. But I mean, if you have a guy who can do anything, who can give you hope for the future, if you have a guy who can do all this stuff for you, you never have to pay for a doctor. You don't have to worry about where your food's coming from. You don't have to worry about wandering in the wilderness. You have a guy who knows it all and can do it all. Of course you're going to follow him. How practical is that? So that's the reason why they're following him. Now, here's the text that I think uh, misleads a lot of us. There's a boy here, verse 9 of chapter 6, back to feeding the 5,000. There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Don't read this, just look at the colors. This is John six one through fifteen again. I'm sorry with my second work. Here's how much talks about the boy. Remember the common interpretation from before. Man, if only I could be more like this boy. If only I could be more generous. If only I brought my lunch to Jesus and He would multiply that. Man, I need to be more generous. I need to go home and think about what I can give. to. I have a, a bicycle in the garage. I can give to Jesus. I have some. Oh, you know, we have some canned food. We can go donate. Let's just let's go donate more canned food. How much of this is talking about the boy's generosity? I put it in blue, and I actually gave it a little more than I actually is talking about it. Half of verse nine. Can you guys guess who the red is talking about? <laughs> Go be more like the boy. Or who do you think, I also highlighted much grass because I think it's funny, I don't know. Why, why did they add that? I'm sure there's a reason, here's the thing. I know there's a reason. <laughs> <I> <laughs> we'll see, talk about it in live groups. But um, (laughs) so much of this. Go be more like the boy or spend more time being overwhelmed by how good Jesus is. Be more like the boy. It's a good thing. Start generosity in your community. That's not a bad thing. It becomes a bad thing when that is the point of the text. When we misunderstand the Bible and we're more consumed by, hey, I need to go be more like this boy. And he'd go be more generous rather than, holy smokes, there's a good God who is not bound by human limitations. And he put on flesh and came not only to feed people, we're going to see that in a, li- in a little bit, not only to feed people, but actually to change the way they think and give them new life and change their desires to him. He doesn't give us a desire to be more generous, he gives us a desire for himself. Yes, it reflects, it comes out in being more generous. But if we just pursue generosity for generosity's sake, if we just go pursue hope for hope's sake, if we just go pursue being a better person for being a better person's sake, I think we have our trust, I think we have our hope, I think we have our foundation in the wrong Jesus. Here's something Jesus tells us again. Oh yeah, then go and think about what you can give. Blue for boy again. Go and think about what you can give. Hey, go be more like that boy. Go think about what you can do. Go, you and cult, these are the quotes from before. Go cultivate your culture of generosity in your community now. That is something to think about. Something to think about. Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now there's much grass. Again, I don't know why that's there. Figure, <laughs> let me know. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 Baskets, I'm sure they're symbolic. <laughs> I'm, uh, 12 tribes of Israel, I'm sure there's symbolism there. We're not gonna unpack it right now. Do it in life groups. Uh, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign he had done, again, when the people saw the sign, the sign, what are we asking about? Question number one, ask about words. The word sign should be a dead giveaway. <laughs> sign, what do you, a sign is, hey, exit here. Hey, slow down, hey, yield. Hey, a sign is pointing to something. Uh, cows entering highway, (laughs) you know, I love those. Uh, There are signs that are actually telling us something. However, they misinterpret the sign as the thing itself. Man, isn't that a great sign? Then you slam into a cow. Man, isn't that a great exit sign? And then you, oh, we missed our exit. Golly, Siri starts saying rerouting, you know. This is indeed, sorry, verse 14, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. I mentioned earlier, it was from Deuteronomy chapter 18, the whole Moses idea, Moses giving manna. Do you see a connection? Manna, what is it but bread? Manna coming from the sky, and then Jesus multiplying bread. In Deuteronomy 18, he's saying, uh, uh, Moses is saying, yeah, God's going to provide bread for us. And then they say, oh, well, Moses did it. Well, God did it, but Moses did it. And now he's getting compared to Moses here in John chapter 6. Jesus and Moses are now being compared, and Jesus is saying, no, actually, I'm giving you bread. I'm not only better than Moses. I can do the same things Moses did, but I can also save your soul. I'm actually doing this under my own power. <laughs> Sneak attack, right? Man, Moses is a pretty great guy. Wow, look at all the cool stuff Moses has done. But I'm better at it. I'm actually God. This is Jesus speaking. Don't ever put those words in my mouth. But Jesus saying, I can do the same stuff Moses did, but actually I'm doing what God did. Actually, here's this, the secret. I'm actually Jesus. I'm God. Here's what he's saying. Uh, verse 18. Sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18, verse 15. Then the Lord, this is a throwback to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, golly, it's a painful book to read, but again, there's joy in it. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses speaking, right after the bread, right after the manna, a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen, just as you've desired the Lord your God at Horeb, on the day of the assembly, when you said, let let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die, again, context is key and helpful here. Verse 17, the Lord said to me, the right and what they have spoken. This is Yahweh. This is God the Father now. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. Remember John chapter 5 talking about they don't even believe my words. I'll put the words in, m- in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. This is the prophet. They, they get it on the one hand. Man, look at the cool stuff this guy's just done. He's probably the guy Moses was talking about. He's probably the guy that the the Lord told Moses was coming, the prophet who was gonna come who was like Moses but better than Moses, that's probably him. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now something crazy happens between they wanna make him king and verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. What on earth did Jesus do to go from the people wanting to aggressively take him by force and make him king to now no one wants to follow him anymore? Guys, it was verse 15 and now 66. Within 49 verses, if you're a math person, correct me, but less than 50 verses later, I'm wrong, 51 verses. After this, many disciples turned back. What was it that happened? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I don't actually just want to come to feed your bellies. I'm not actually just coming for signs. If you're trusting in the Jesus who feeds your belly, you're trusting in a false Jesus. If you're trusting in a Jesus who just performs signs, you're trusting in a false Jesus. In their context, they were looking for someone who was like Moses, but better than Moses, but they didn't quite get it. Hey, he's kind of like Moses. He's a really cool guy. He's important. That results in Disciples walking away after the going gets tough. We have so many false Jesuses in our world today. The problem is we call them Jesus. It's one thing to say, man, if only, if only the, the, the TV was on in my house less. If only the radio was more clean. If only the, the top 40 music on the radio didn't sound as bad. If only our culture was better. And then that's the Jesus. Jesus, come fix our culture. We need a Jesus who will fix our culture, absolutely. We need a Jesus who will fill our bellies, absolutely. We need a Jesus who performs miracles, absolutely. How are we going to get saved? How are we going to have the opportunity to trust in him without him doing something really incredible? We need that. But friends, I think so often we put our faith, we put our trust in a Jesus who just gives us stuff. We put our trust in a Jesus who feeds our worldly appetites. We put our trust in a Jesus who fill in the blank. We trust in a Jesus who will make my life better. Now here's a crazy thing, he actually does, but it's not because of the stuff he gives you. It's for giving himself to you. He didn't come to to feed our worldly appetites. He came to change them entirely. Again, the idea of repentance, he didn't say, hey, go say sorry for all your sins. He said, no, there's actually something much more satisfying. No, there's something actually so much better. There's something that's going to actually give you so much more joy than anything you can chase after in this world. There's actually a treasure better than that really nice car. There's actually a treasure better than getting that bigger house. There's actually a treasure better than getting the pay raise at your job, or the promotion, or this, or that, or the other, or getting out of foreclosure. I'm just saying words at this point, but (laughs) there's something so much more satisfying than a Jesus who just comes and makes your life easier. Again, I think he does make your life a whole lot better by changing your desires by changing that paradigm on which you think about him, man, if I come to Jesus, my life's gonna get way better. No, actually, he's going to make your life better because he is so much more valuable than anything else. It's not he's gonna satisfy your worldly desires, he's actually gonna satisfy the main desire that you need satisfied, and that's him himself. There's nothing better than following Jesus. There's nothing more joy-filled than following Jesus. Here are some quick takeaways. Again, I'm sorry, I probably went over, am I right? Whatever. Takeaways. God wrote us a book. Sorry, I shouldn't say that for you guys. Whatever for me. If you guys want to leave, you're free, but um, <laughs> sorry, John. <laughs> I'm still going. I have, s- I have a couple more things. So what are our takeaways? Why do we care that God wrote us John chapter 6? Uh, first of all, God wrote us a book. I almost said stinking. Can I say stinking? Can I say stinking? Okay, Steve if you give me the okay. God wrote us a stinking book. <laughs> like, <laughs> What? So many, oh my goodness, so many people are looking for the meaning of life. So many people are searching for it, and God wrote us a stinking book. Let's read it well. Read it often. Why? Not because you're supposed to. God doesn't want that. God delights in a cheerful giver. You know, he's talking about tithing in that context, but I think we can take the idea and make it more abstract and then apply it to our lives. God actually wants us to be full of joy. There's actually a result. Don't do this begrudgingly to make yourself a better Christian. Don't go evangelize because you should evangelize. You're supposed to evangelize. Don't go start a culture of generosity in a community full of, uh, described by generosity because you're supposed to. If it's making you more joyful, do it and do it a lot. The qualifier on that is the way it's going to make you more joyful is by doing it because Jesus is so good. Don't just go read your Bible because you're supposed to read your Bible. I don't think God wants that. I'm just doing stuff to do stuff. No, he actually has this crazy thing called joy that you actually get more joy when you read the Bible because it's pointing to Jesus and you're being consumed by who he is and you're getting a glimpse into his mind. There's nothing more satisfying than getting a glimpse into the mind of God. The task at hand is, I just said that, author's intent. So here's another takeaway. Keep pursuing the satisfaction and joy that comes only from Jesus. He didn't come to fulfill your worldly desires. He came to actually change your desires. Jesus came to give us more joy, more satisfaction, more hope. All of that good stuff that everyone's looking for, we have it. The secret is that it's in Jesus himself. It's not in all this other stuff. It's in Jesus himself. Keep pursuing the satisfaction. Keep pursuing the joy that comes only from Jesus. If you're not experiencing it, I have so many friends who... They're just broken. That they're not experiencing this joy, and they're going through all sorts of different things. But if you're not experiencing it, ask Jesus for the desire for more Jesus. Keep praying for it, not because you're supposed to. Man, I'm a bad Christian. I better read my Bible more. I better, I better pray. I didn't pray four times today. I didn't pray before every meal. I better do that better next week. I better do a better tomorrow. I have another meal coming up at lunch. I better better pray longer so I'm a good Christian. No, Jesus doesn't want that. That's one of those fake Jesuses that the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament were following just do stuff, behavior modification, change the way you act. We don't follow a behavior modification gospel, my friends. We follow a gospel of Jesus being more satisfying than anything else. And he is our greatest treasure. Ask him for the desire to pursue him more. He loves that stuff. This is, I will say this is a bit of an assumption, but he loves when we ask him for more of him. Find satisfaction in the God who is not bound by human limitations. Do any of you know any humans who can feed 5,000 with five bread and two fish? (laughs) I don't. Maybe you do. Maybe David Blaine has a little trick up his sleeve. But in reality, who isn't bound by human limitations? I'm only one person. I wish I was more. But all of us are bound by human limitations. However... There was a guy who walked about 2,000 years ago, a guy who talked, a guy who ate, a guy who lived among other people who was not bound by human limitations, who can do stuff that is just so wild and so crazy, find more satisfaction in him. Uh, Why? Because God is beyond human limitations. God is so far beyond this stuff. Yes, he has the power to make your community more generous. Yes, he has the power to give you a bigger house. Is that the thing we seek after? Are those the treasures that we're looking for? Stuff all burns in the end. He is more satisfying than any of that stuff. Pursue the God who is not bound by human limitations. Pursue the God who is more satisfying than anything else. And again, he wrote us a stinking book. Like we have, we have it. I have it on my phone in like eight different languages. I have, and some of them I can't even read. Like, <laughs> it's not even useful to me. But I have them in so many different languages. I have them. Um, I, I have. If you go to my office, I have like four Bibles in there. I need one, but I have so many. Like, we have this thing. It's accessible, and we still don't even want it. It's so satisfying. The problem is, we read it because we're supposed to read it. I don't think it actually helps. Read it because there's nothing more satisfying than getting a glimpse into the mind of God. God wrote us a book. There is nothing better than saturating your life in him and in the word he has given us. So let me pray for us. God, thank you for your goodness.